Hello, and welcome to Inside the Physician Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Stacey Borans. I'm the founder and chief medical officer for Advanced Medical Strategies. Today's episode is the second part of our podcast on the opioid crisis. In our first part, we examined the extent of the epidemic, who's responsible, and the problems and issues that it is causing both um, from an economic as well as a a health-related burden. In today's episode, we're going to talk about some of the solutions. So if you haven't listened to the first part, I would encourage you to do that before you listen to the second part, and then you'll have a a better foundation of where this one is is going. So uh, before we get into the solutions, I just wanted to sort of make one final note on the, um, the true impact that this epidemic is having on America. For the first time in a generation, the life expectancy for Americans has declined for the second year in a row. And this decline is primarily driven by the continued and massive increases in deaths from drug drug overdose, about two-thirds of which are overdoses on opioids such as heroin, and fentanyl. So we haven't seen anything like this in our lifetime. So this is truly a massive scale that really needs to be addressed as aggressively as possible. Um, otherwise, the all the graphs that we see with the mortality increase rates uh, will continue to, to go up. So let's talk about what can we do to um, address this problem? And so first, let's talk about the the types of things that we use to help um, patients afflicted with opioid addiction. And the first thing that we're going to talk about is the drug called naloxone. And really, this drug is is truly a, a lifesaver. Um, it, it, the trade name for this um, is is Narcan. So I'm sure you've heard about this all over the the news. This can be given intramuscularly. It can be given intravenously. It can be given subcutaneously, which is under the skin. It can be given um, as an inhalation treatment, and it can also be given intranasally. Um, It is used by uh, both medical professionals um, as well as first responders, and we're going to talk a little bit uh, about how it's being used by average, everyday people with no medical training whatsoever. So naloxone is what we call an opioid agonist rescue drug. And so it's very um, effective to reverse overdoses from both prescription opioids and, um, and heroin. Now, it's not terribly expensive as, as a generic, um, but the, the vial costs for a 10 milliliter vial have actually doubled to $150 from two to three years ago. So again, not terribly expensive, but it's actually doubled. And that markedly exceeds the production costs, which are $14 a vial. There are 23 states right now that have statutes that allow for what we call third-party prescriptions of naloxone. And that means the prescription can be written to a friend, to a relative, or any person who's in a position to um, assist somebody who is at risk of experiencing a, um, an overdose. So this could be children um, who actually are doing this, you know, for their parents in the home. Um, this could be 
um, parents for their their kids, grandparents, cousins, anybody, friends. So it's it's really something that we've never seen before where a prescription is actually written to somebody with no medical training um, in the event of uh, a catastrophic overdose. And I am sure you have all seen the videos on YouTube that get posted all over social media, um, uh, people overdosing you know, in their cars, kids in the back seat, um, people coming upon them um, and being uh, resuscitated with, uh, with naloxone. It's pretty horrifying images to, to obviously see. But it is uh, the one rescue drug that we have that works, you know, quite acutely. There, um, there actually, in the past several years, was uh, another drug that um, uh, a trade name drug that was developed, which is also naloxone, but it is an auto injector, and that is a drug called Evzio, and that's E V Z I O. This drug is manufactured by a company called Kaleo, um, which was actually founded by twin brothers, Eric and Evan Edwards. And Evizio is uh, fairly special because it actually talks the user through the process as they inject the naloxone. Again, remember, these are going to be people who don't have any medical training. You're going to be in a heightened pressure situation where you might not know what you're doing and you're you're nervous and you're um, scared. And so this drug actually talks you through the process as you inject the naloxone. And in fact, that is a reason that's given for the, the price of the drug in that, you know, it's not just a drug, but it's it's a drug that talks to you. Evzio accounts for nearly uh, 20% of the naloxone that's been, that has been dispensed through retail outlets um, through 2016, and for nearly half of all the naloxone products prescribed to patients between the ages of 40 and 64, again, uh, the group that comprises the bulk of, um, of opioid uh, users. So... Evzio comes in a, a twin pack, so it's uh, there's two in there for the auto injector. In 2014, the price for that two pack was very t- low. It was $650, so not terribly expensive. Uh, today, the price for that twin pack for what we call the AMS risk threshold. Um, and those of you who are familiar with Predict RX um, know that that indicates really the fiscal red line of tolerance that you should pay for, for any drug. That stands at about $8,250 for a two pack. Um, so it is, the demand has obviously driven the price upwards because people are using this drug in order to um, rescue friends and family from opioid overdoses. It is a necessary drug. And so the manufacturer has seen fit to address that demand and, and raise the price. Now, Kaleo is actually trying to blunt the, the pricing backlash and turn Evzio into this sort of trusted brand by dispensing its device for free to cities and first responders and, and some drug treatment programs as well. Um, such donations were actually very um, integral to the to the EpiPens business strategy when their their price went up. Um, the, you know, and the device is obviously invaluable to to patients, but some groups um, or cities might only have ten thousand dollars to spend on naloxone for a whole year to supply a whole city. And so, if they only have 
$10,000 to spend, they're, they're certainly not going to go ahead and buy basically a, a twin pack of, uh, of Evzio. So the, the price increase really does impact on availability of the drug for, for cities who are struggling to, to find places to, to afford it. So some of the other things that really need to be looked at for, for patients are, are uh, treatment in terms of detoxification as well as inpatient and or outpatient rehab and then sort of aftercare treatment um, facilities. So detox is the, the safe withdrawal um, from addictive substances that are performed under the, the care of a physician. Those therapies will really address the immediate effects of withdrawal symptoms. It can be um, inpatient versus outpatient. The choice really depends on many factors, including the uh, the amount that somebody is using, the length of time they've been using, um, history of their abuse, psychosocial issues, their age, any coexisting or medical and or psychiatric conditions. The standard inpatient detox is about three to six days. So it's not terribly long. But those residual symptoms can persist, you know, for, for weeks for these, these patients. And you're looking at anywhere, a lot of these tend to be, you know, supportive. Um, there may be a day in the ICU, but most of these patients then, you know, move to the floor and we're giving them um, detox medications, things like methadone, if would, people would be most familiar with. But then there's another drug called Suboxone, which is a, a combination of naloxone and another drug called uh, buprenorphine. So the overall detox inpatient admission itself doesn't tend to be so terribly um, expensive. Some of the outpatient treatments that you can see, that's where we really start to, to see where some of the costs start to, um, to increase. Insurance coverage for, um, for detox admissions really does vary um, by plan. Opioid detox is actually not considered life-threatening, so that results in the, the very criteria rules that, that you have. And after acute detox, patients can be discharged to outpatient care, rehab, or they can transfer to other levels of care, such as an inpatient psychiatric stay, again, depending on the comorbid conditions that actually exist. If the patients are going to go to rehab, there are two basic choices that exist, either inpatient or outpatient rehab. And there's really no concrete documentation to endorse one over the other. Really, again, has to do with some of the patient characteristics. Inpatient rehab is generally recommended in those patients who have failed outpatient programs in the past with relapse, have extremely poor support or other comorbid conditions. Um, the length of stay for most inpatient rehab programs usually begins with a 21 to 28 day program. And for those who remain at risk, that inpatient program can extend up to 180 days, six months, based on the severity. And the length of stay and the location of the facility will greatly affect the, the overall costs, um, along with some of the treatments that are given and some of the maintenance and the monitoring that gets done, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Um, outpatient rehab is after detox really uh, most often includes an intensive outpatient program called IOP, a partial hospital program, which is PHP, um, in addition to a 12-step program. And that length can, um, length of treatment can continue for months based on the, the patient response. So again, a lot of the aftercare costs of detox are where you start to see the higher amounts 
for these um, for these patients. And it is crucially important to examine medical necessity both for the level of care and the length of stay for these patients and make sure that they continue to meet whatever criteria the plan has set um, for, for medical necessity. Um, a lot of these can turn into residential stays and we've seen cases where patients are in these for upwards of a, of a year. And it really does need to be looked at to make sure that it is appropriate for them to remain there and they couldn't have stepped down to a lower level of care. So once you get out of, say, inpatient rehab, um, there are, or if you're in outpatient rehab, there's a variety of different treatment settings. Um, so there's one-to-one therapy, which you know is really self-explanatory. It's the patient working with um, a therapist to work through the the issues of addiction. Um, intensive intensive outpatient programs, which I'd already mentioned. Most of these meet three times a week for an average of three hours per session. The patients can live at home or in a residential treatment center for an IOP. There are also partial hospital programs, as I mentioned earlier. Those meet five times a week for an average of six hours per session, and the patient can live at home or in a residential treatment center. Then we have actually true residential treatment care where the patient lives in a monitored facility, most often attending an IOP or a PHP program and other group or individual therapies specific to the care center. We have sober living environments. That's a group home for those who need clean, sober environments. Usually that's recovering addicts living together, sharing the responsibilities, including payment of rent, utilities, cooking, and and cleaning. Then we also have things like wilderness and nature programs that are primarily used for for teens with um, dual diagnoses. Those programs can start as early as five years old. However, most accept children from, say, 12 to 17 years old. Um, Residential programs that provide therapy um, as well as academics to meet individual um, student needs are, are, are really how they're meant to be utilized. A minimum stay is generally from four to six weeks, although some of those programs can extend into um, a year or more based on on need. And then you actually um, have, uh, as I mentioned before, acute psychiatric inpatient hospitalization. So that can include um, a a specialty psych hospital itself or a specialty unit within a uh, a medical hospital. Um, my one of my very first jobs that I ever had was I worked as a mental health counselor on a locked inpatient psychiatric unit. So I gained a lot of experience and understanding um, sort of how these uh, patients interact, and it was um, it, it was worthwhile work uh, for the the folks you were able to help. But it was quite disheartening to see the revolving door of uh, continued readmissions for 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 relapse for these patients. The um, where I worked was actually within a, a, a general hospital. Um, it's the old Winthrop Hospital for those of you who reside in Massachusetts. Um, and we had both a locked unit as well as an unlocked unit. And patients, you know, did transfer back and forth between each of the the units. And they received a lot of um, uh, behavioral therapy um, as well as medication therapy. They were seen by a psychiatrist, but mostly the mental health counselors themselves monitored um, the, the, the patients there. So criteria for inpatient hospitalization can include resistance to outpatient care, 
uh, a suicide risk, um, unstable vital signs, medical comorbidities, um, and involuntary hospitalization can also be used for, for high risk cases. And that is really going to be subject to kind of local, um, legal jurisdiction guidelines. So a higher level of care can often be considered when a patient um, has been cooperative with the treatment plan, but still, you know, uses opioids. And relapse is very, very common during the recovery process. And um, it can indicate that whatever treatment program they're in does need to be reevaluated or changed. Again, it is most important to look at these and review the the medical necessity um, of this this care. Um, a lot of the claims that we tend to see for this, I mentioned earlier about some of the wilderness and nature programs. Some of those are very appropriate, particularly for adolescents, but you do need to be very careful and look out for other types of therapy within these facilities that really do not have any benefit. And I'm speaking specifically of things like water therapy, equine therapy, dog therapy, a lot of those really don't have any basis in terms of treating um, addiction. They might have some role in looking at some of the behavioral issues for some of the other psychiatric illnesses these patients have, but it is not something that that truly ends up um, being medically necessary for for an addict themselves. Um, I would encourage you to look closely at claims that come from facilities with palm and breezy and by the water and seaside um, in terms of length of stay and and level of care. Uh, one of my colleagues used to tell me that uh, even this isn't a, a real facility, but if, uh, if, if, if the word is uh, palm breezy hospital, you're really in serious trouble. Um, but these do tend to be coastal locations. Uh, patients will actually travel. A lot of times what we've seen is that it's the uh, husband or wife of the CEO or somebody uh, high up in HR who ends up in these facilities. And then suddenly the claims start rolling in when they're not really able to, to pay out of pocket. So again, just something to really be aware of. Another thing to be um, highly attuned to is the frequency and use of laboratory testing during these um, admissions. Now, drug screening during treatment should definitely be performed, you know, as appropriate based on the the person's presentation. Everybody should and will be screened upon the first presentation, but continued laboratory testing really needs to be medically necessary. A urine drug screen should require a physician or nurse practitioner um, order. The documentation should cite the reason for for obtaining the extra laboratory testing, and that should be available for review in order to validate the need and the cost for the testing. A lot of times what we'll see is some of these rehab centers or sober living houses will use what they call standing house orders, um, which mean they're written on admission to repeat laboratory testing, repeat urine drug screen, anywhere from three to five times per week, regardless of the the patient's history of use. Um, this practice is not at all recommended, and we would tell you that uh, to do a medical, recess, medical necessity review prior to, to any reimbursement. We have, we have done hundreds upon hundreds of these types of reviews for the, the laboratory testing, and a vast majority of them are found to not be medically necessary, both either in frequency um, or duration. 
And then, of course, there are the costs associated with this. Some of these laboratory tests run, you know, three, four hundred dollars um, each, and they're grouped into one whole series where they look for ten or twelve drugs. So you're starting to rack up two, three, sometimes four thousand dollars worth of um, laboratory bills each time a urine drug screen is, is done. So I would encourage you to review this very, very critically and make sure that it is appropriate before um, reimbursing. Um, you may also, if you do find it to be medically necessary, to actually go ahead and look at reduction of those um, charges to um, reasonable and customary or work on negotiating with the facilities because, as I said, the bill charges can be quite high. And um, ultimately, the laboratory testing and the um, ongoing inpatient uh, as well as IOP treatment um, are what accounts for the, the vast charges that we see for, um, for addiction uh, therapy. Um, another thing that is uh, highly recommended um, is something called medication-assisted treatment, and that is um, effective therapy for, for opioid use disorder, and it's the use of medications in combination with behavioral therapies to really provide sort of the whole patient approach to the treatment of substance abuse disorders. This is recommended for moderate to severe opioid use disorder as the risk of relapse for those patients um, is very high. But patients will remain physically dependent but monitored in a controlled setting. This, uh, this is typically what you would be familiar with with your, your methadone clinics. <clears throat> Mortality rates are substantially reduced for those involved um, and enrolled in these, these programs. These types of medications include not only um, methadone, but as I mentioned before, something called Suboxone, um, Buprenex, uh, Revia, Vivitrol. There, there's a bunch of them. Uh, that are that can actually be used. Um, it's interesting um, when you look at Suboxone. Um, the uh, that drug can actually be prescribed for opioid use disorders within primary care, as opposed to just um, a monitored um, clinic itself, like methadone is. So that's actually a very important treatment option for for primary care physicians as well as patients. But the flip side of that is that. Um, many patients who use that drug and have shorter lengths of treatment actually appear to continue to use um, prescription opioids both during and, and after Suboxone <clears throat> treatment. So um, those patients do need to be looked at fairly closely to make sure that they are using the medication appropriately and not using as, as well. Um, the CDC is actually helping addicted folks get the help that they need through their own uh, medication uh, assisted treatment program. So they're, they're kind of looking out for that. And then some other therapies that we use are cognitive behavioral therapy, social skills training, psychodynamic therapy, interpersonal therapy, um, 12 step programs such as Narcotics Anonymous. So there's a lot of programs that are out there. It's a matter of availability and access for the, the patients, um, as well as coverage. And, you know, we've been talking a lot, in these past few days about uh, mental health and access to care for, for mental health. Um, and it is uh, very, very similar for, for folks who are addicted to um, prescription drugs in, in getting them the, the care that they need um, and what is covered. So what are the, what are sort of the more global things that we're doing to, um, to solve this crisis? Well, there's a few things I want to tell you about. 
The first is the um, Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. So that is a state-run electronic databases of prescriptions for controlled substances. And this helps to really support data sharing so that we can have safe prescribing and health information technology um, integration uh, across state lines for practitioners so that they can see where these patients are going to doctor shop and, and get their medications. Um, these uh, PDMP programs can provide a prescriber or a pharmacist with important information regarding a patient's prescription history, um, allowing them to potentially identify somebody who is um, abusing medications. Uh, right now, 49 states, not Missouri, that's the only one, the District of Columbia and one U.S. territory, which is Guam, have legislation authorizing the creation and operation of a prescription drug monitoring program, and all except the Washington, D.C. program um, are operational. Um, so the, the Washington dysfunction uh, does extend not only to Congress, um, but to prescription drug monitoring as well. PDP um, evals um, have really detected positive changes in prescribing patterns and has resulted in the decreased use of multiple providers. In fact, New York showed a 75% reduction in multiple provider episodes, and Kentucky showed a decline in prescriptions um, issued for hydrocodone by 10%, for oxycodone by 12%, and oxymorphone by 35%. So we're seeing more and more increased investments in state-level prevention um, interventions like the PDMP to really further track opioid prescribing and, and support appropriate pain management. Because um, I do think the one thing that gets lost, and I'm obviously talking about the opioid crisis, is that there are certainly circumstances and, and sit clinical situations that require um, opioid um, narcotics for, for chronic pain management for a lot of these patients. And I think uh, in the first episode, I did mention, you know, particularly when you're talking about patients with um, metastatic cancer um, pain. So we, we do sort of, you know, tend to lump everybody together. Um, not everybody is using opioids inappropriately, although it just sort of feels that way since that's all we see on the, the news all the time. Um, so, you know, providers are really stuck in, in sort of a, a no-win situation. Um, they don't want to over-prescribe because of the, the fear of addiction. Um, and so there's really a, a segment of the population that is under-prescribed, where we're not using enough medication to treat patients who do truly have extensive chronic pain and need to be to be managed. Um, they're kind of falling into this um, the, the rabbit hole of everybody being concerned about um, uh, over prescribing and then and they're really suffering. So it it's a fine line to, to try and walk, but um, you, you know we, we need to try and do that as, as best we can to, to manage both sides of, of that coin. So other things that we're looking at is something called the Pill Mill uh, Doctor Project. Um, so a pill mill is a, a doctor's office or a clinic or a healthcare facility that routinely actively conspires in the prescribing and dispensing of um, controlled substances outside of the scope of, of prevailing standards of, of medical care. Um, so they're, they're really f fraudulent providers. So these are these are your bad actor physicians. These are not your good guy physicians. Um, and so CMS, this is a CM, the pill mill doctor project is a, a CMS project to identify prescribers with high risks of fraud, waste, and abuse in prescribing um, schedule two to four controlled substances. 
And as a result of the pill mill project, uh, Medicare Part D plan sponsors have taken actions, which include um, provider termination, desk audits, interviews, as well as referrals to um, to law enforcement. So um, there's a lot sort of going on to look at that. In fact, other countries, even though the U.S. has uh, the vast lion's share of the, the problem, are actually working to help solve the problem um, here. In fact, last year, China added a, um, a deadly elephant tranquilizer substance and three related synthetic opioids to its list of controlled substances. Um, and that was effective um, March uh, a year ago in 2017. And what that did was to close a major loophole in the global regulation of a substance um, so lethal that it's actually been used as a chemical weapon and describe um, a terrorist threat. The DEA actually referred to that as a potential game changer because it was very likely to reduce the supply of um, key chemicals um, into the U.S. that was driving a surge of overdoses and deaths among um, unsuspecting drug users. So it was, um, you know, things that were being cut into these various products that were incredibly lethal and killing a lot of people. And because China went ahead and reclassified that particular drug, that actually helped to decrease some things going on here in the in the U.S. So other things that, that are happening, just to kind of give you a little bit of a, of a rundown, um, the CDC is providing training and educational resources, um, updating its prescriber guidelines to help assist um, healthcare professionals to make informed prescribing decisions and, and address the overprescribing of opioids. They're actually offering financial incentives to communities across America who support the CDC programs. And as of March of last year, the CDC had actually given over $40 million to um, about 30 states to help improve safe prescribing uh, practices. Um, CMS, as I mentioned, has the Pill Mill uh, Doctors Project. It also uh, looked to increase uh, support for naloxone, expand screening, expand diagnosis, um, and expand the, the treatment of opioid uh, use disorders. Aetna developed its own database to track high-risk patients to alert their doctors to be watchful for drug abuse. Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts uh, instituted some major policy changes that uh, if a patient is prescribed more than 30 days worth of painkillers, the, the physician must get um, prior authorization. Cigna has done a couple of things as well. They partnered with the American Society of Addiction Medicine to study um, which substance abuse treatments are most effective. Um, and they're all for, they also encourage primary care doctors to recommend um, physical and cognitive uh, behavioral therapy to patients um, who uh, complain of, of pain. Uh, the federal government is looking at teaching medical professionals how and when to prescribe opioids um, and having physicians working with lawmakers on bipartisan legislation to require that specific training for um, opioid prescribing is, you know, is a really good thing. So there's a lot of things that are going on. There's more initiatives that come out, you know, every day to, to really try and help combat this this crisis. Um, you can certainly look to um, uh, plans and payers in, in your state, um, as well as what's going on at the, the federal level to see that we're looking to more aggressively um, identify the, the problems and what are the, the solutions. Um, but we need money. And, you know, it's important that the federal government release some of the dollars to the, the state level so that they can do what, what needs to be done. 
So I hope that gives you an overview of both the problems as well as some of the solutions for the uh, opioid crisis. Uh, if you have any questions um, or any interesting information that you'd like to, to share with me, please feel free to email me at stacy.borans at mdstrat.com. I thank you so much for joining me today, and I hope that this podcast has been informative and helpful for you. Thank you so much.